Well, good morning. That was awesome. I don't usually get to come to the 915 service. I'm usually with the singles at this time, but that's, uh, that was really cool having the orchestra. That was great. Um, well, it's good to be here this morning. I know that uh, many of you have enjoyed your last few weeks, your snapshot into seminary um, from Roger, as he's been fielding some of your questions that you've had about eschatology and why you can trust the Bible and things along those lines. And I want to confess a few things to you this morning as we start off. Um, number one, I don't have any cool charts for you this morning. No graphic slides, no real cool illustrations. Roger used all those up the last few weeks, so I'm sorry. Um, secondly, when uh, Roger was receiving all the questions about uh, questions the congregation had, questions the congregation wanted answered, um, no one asked, hey, do you think Michael Loudermilk could preach over Mark 10 <laughs> one Sunday morning? <laughs> no, that was not a, a highly asked question. But that being said, I do, I am blessed to be here. I'm excited about this passage we're looking at because I think that it has some incredible merit for what's going on. Because basically the last few weeks what Roger's done for the most part is say, hey, here's why you can trust your Bible. Here's why you can trust your Bible about things that have happened. And here's why you can trust your Bible about what is to come. And what I want to talk about this morning is why we can trust our Bible for the right here and the right now. And even beyond why, how can we trust it, what does it say about this life right here right now. You know, this may shock you, but I love sports. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I love sports. And uh, growing up, I loved sports. And I loved all different sports. I had a favorite team for every sport. And I had a favorite player for every team. But there was one athlete who stood out above the rest. There was one guy who just captured my imagination. There was one guy who was just, he was the athlete growing up. And that was Michael Jordan. He was incredible. Just an incredible player. And it was always a dream of mine to see Michael Jordan play live. Like, I want to go see him in person. I want to see him. And fortunately for me, my sophomore year in high school, my dream became a reality. I'd been hanging out with this girl for a little bit and and she knew that my birthday was coming up. And she knew that I really wanted to see Michael Jordan live. She was also extremely wealthy. <laughs> but I'll never forget, she hands me my birthday present. I kid you not. Open up that present. Two tickets. $250 a piece to go see the Bulls versus the Spurs on my birthday, I was going to go see Michael Jordan. But then I felt so guilty about how much they cost that I said, I can't accept these. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, let's go. I was yoked up. I was fired up for that. Now, we did not date long after that. But I did get to see Michael Jordan play live. So in retrospect, I think we would all have to say that that relationship was a success. 
And, and watching Jordan play was as advertised. I mean, there's 10 guys on the court, and I watched one guy all game. I didn't care about the other nine. I just watched Jordan. His athleticism, his skill, I mean, it just, it just blew me away. He was that good. You couldn't take your eyes off of him. And I bring that up because that is the same way I feel when I read about Jesus in the Gospels. I love reading the Gospels. I love reading about Jesus. He is absolutely captivating. He is even more captivating than watching Michael Jordan play basketball. I am continually blown away by him. And I'm so thankful for the Gospels. I'm so thankful that through the Gospels, we know, that he was, we know what he was like. We know what he said. We know what he did. And even more than that, we know who God is like because of the life of Jesus. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Regarding Jesus, he has explained who God is. It's where we get the word exegete. When you exegete the scriptures, exegesis, it's from that John 1.18. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness of deity. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And then one of my favorites, Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Icon. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. There's just no one like Jesus. So I want to spend some time this morning and listen to what Jesus has to tell us about our life and about what's really important in our life. So if you would turn with me to Mark 10, some of y'all may already be there. We'll start in verse 17. And just for quick context as you're turning there, um, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem at this time. This is Mark 10. Starting Mark 11 starts the Passion. 11 through 16. There's 16 chapters in Mark. 11 through 16 is the Passion. And so they're on the road to the crucifixion. He knows it. He's, pre he's predicted it. He's told them what's going to come. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew exactly where he was going. The road that he was on led to a cross. And while they're on their way, this man approaches them. And y'all have heard this story before. Many of you have. And thanks to the other gospel writers, we know this man as the rich, young ruler. And here's what happens. Verse 17. It says, he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking up at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. So let's picture this, right? Let's picture this scene. Jesus is there with his disciples out on the road. This guy comes up, and man, he looks the part. He's young. He's rich. He's a ruler. 
He's dressed nice. This guy's Harvard Law. He's Ivy League. He's got it all together. He is the picture of success. He is the picture of achievement. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus probably said, Great question, rich young ruler. It's probably not what he called him, but I mean, this guy's earnest. This guy is humble. He's on his knees. He bows down. This guy is hungry. This guy is clearly asking the right question. He's on the right track. And he asked the question that all of us need to ask. Jesus, what must I do to be saved? I mean, this looks like some seriously low-hanging fruit. I mean, I'm a pastor. This, this is beautiful. This guy's hungry for the truth. And how does Jesus respond? After Jesus points out this kind of irony, it's a play on words of the word good because good was really reserved for God. And so it's an ironic statement by the guy. He goes, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. You know the commandments. Now listen, Jesus is not teaching a works-based gospel. He doesn't have bad theology. Jesus is not saying that following the commandments is what saves you. He is merely pointing out what is necessary for all of us if we were to come to faith. If we were to be followers of Christ. And that is a recognition and repentance of sin. An understanding of our own inadequacy in regards to righteousness. But the rich young ruler doesn't get it. He's not tracking, is he? He's not following. Because he responds to Jesus with enthusiasm. Countenance changes. Face lightens up, lights up. He says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. He's not, he's not tracking. He's not following where Jesus is going. So Jesus makes sure he gets his point across, and he drops one of his proverbial truth bombs on the guy. Calls him out. Verse 21 says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. It says Jesus felt love for him. Felt love for this unbeliever. And at the same time, he pointed out his error. He pointed out this guy's error. And Jesus hits him where it hurts. He tells him, hey, young man, you got one more thing you got to do. I know you're wealthy. I know you got a lot of riches. Why don't you go sell all that? Why don't you give it to the poor? And why don't you, why don't you come follow me? It's the only time he told somebody to do that in all the scripture. Clearly, this guy was gripping on it. I mean, Jesus just blows me away. He's so outside the box. I mean, let's be honest. This is quite an interesting recruiting strategy to get a prospective disciple. I mean, Jesus clearly did not take marketing classes in college. I mean, this, that's not how you do it. Seriously, listen to some of his best sales pitches. You ready? Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Hey, hey, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How about this? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. I bet there were times when the disciples were like, Jesus, come on. Do you really have to go there? Eat flesh? Drink blood? How are we supposed to start a movement, Jesus? 
How are we supposed to get to be a mega church when you're talking like that? But Jesus doesn't conform to any mold. He was so upfront and he is so honest. And I just, I love it. He says to the rich young ruler, and really he says to us, he says, I want you to follow me. But you need to know something. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Jesus is so intense. We don't give him enough credit for how intense he is. He's so intense. And he goes right to the heart with this guy. Think about how incredible this is. Here's a guy who goes face to face with God incarnate. He's face to face with Jesus. He asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers him. And then not only that, invites him to come follow him. I mean, what a deal. Hallelujah, right? I mean, this guy should be fired up. And yet he's not. Scripture tells us, but at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. How tragic. Think about that. An invitation from Jesus face to face. And he says, no. Here's a man who got the ultimate invitation and turned it down because it was too costly. It was too demanding. He turned it down because he loved his lifestyle more than he loved God. How tragic and yet how common. I mean, how many of us are willing to follow God, but when it gets too hard or gets too demanding, we hit the brakes? I don't know. You see, a lot of people like to talk about the love of Jesus. And you know what? He was so loving. And I am blown away by his love. And a lot of people like to talk about how forgiving Jesus is. And you know what? Jesus is absolutely forgiving. And I'm blown away by his forgiveness. But make no mistake, read the scripture for yourself. This loving Jesus, who is a forgiving Jesus, is a demanding Jesus. He is demanding. He's not interested in being a hobby. He's not interested in being a face in the crowd. He's interested in being Lord of your life, and he's interested in being followed. Let's not sugarcoat something that Jesus doesn't sugarcoat. Life with Jesus is demanding. It's demanding. You know, many people often stop after that story and close their Bible and they go, whew, that was heavy. And then they're done. And when they do that, they miss out on this amazing conversation that takes place right afterwards between Jesus and his disciples, most notably Peter. It's incredible. It is incredible. And so... What happens is this man walks away sad, and Jesus looks at his guys. He looks at his, his fellows, his disciples, and here's what he says. He says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? I want you to place yourself in the inner circle. Jesus calls his guys up after this intense encounter. And so like a coach, he calls his guys up. 
makes eye contact. You're sitting in there in the inner circle. You're there. He's looking at you in the eye. You've just seen this powerful scene. And he looks around and he talks about how difficult it is for the wealthy to be saved. And the disciples are amazed. They're amazed. They're like, what? And he's, Jesus he sees their faces and he hears their voices and he hears the confusion and he presses in even further. He says, you want to know how hard it is? You want to know how difficult it is? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. Now the disciples are astonished. And they're so astonished that they ask Jesus a question that, that for a lot of us doesn't make any sense. And they go, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Because in that day and age, if you were wealthy, they thought if you were wealthy, well, you're living right in the eyes of God. They thought wealthy, if you're wealthy, it meant you had a leg up in terms of salvation. Thankfully, we don't struggle with that anymore, do we? We would never think that we as wealthy North Americans living in houses are more valuable to God than a poor African. We would never think that our newest toy is more important to God than a starving child in Central America. We would never be guilty of such gross theology, would we? You see, they think wealth equals favor, and Jesus says, no, you're wrong. They think wealth equals greater chance for salvation, and Jesus says, Hey, man, you're wrong. And they are so stunned by this revelation that, that they, they go, well, then who can be saved? Because, I mean, if this guy can't be saved, who can? And right then, guys, Jesus has him right where he wants him. He has him right where he wants him. And he leans in and he says this amazing sentence. And he com completely recalibrates their view of salvation with one sentence. This is soteriology 101 right here. He says, with people... It is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. He completely recalibrates their view of salvation. Completely. He says, apart from God, guys, you got no chance. But God can do the incredible. God can do the unthinkable. God can do the impossible. God can take you and God can remake you. God can give you a new life. God can make you a new creation. God can pay the penalty for sin. God can redeem your life. You, you don't have a chance. It's impossible. But God, you better believe it. It is absolutely possible. What Jesus is saying here is, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how educated you are. I don't care how many letters you have after your name. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what's in your bank account. I don't care about any of that. You can't save yourself. It is impossible. It's impossible. Only God can save you. Only God can bring salvation. That's why Luke writes in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. John 14, 6, y'all know it well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, life with Jesus, no doubt, is demanding. But brothers and sisters, life with Jesus is the only thing that's redeeming. 
And it is the only way to redemption. It is the only way. God has given no other provision for salvation except his son, Jesus Christ. Period. You can't save yourself. It's impossible. Powerful revelation, deep theology, significant truth, and he's not done. And I want to finish this morning by looking at the last few verses here because these are packed. This is intense. This time he's going to completely recalibrate their view again. And this time it's in regards to earthly rewards and what they can expect here on earth. And so Peter is sitting there and surprisingly, you know, surprisingly, not surprisingly, feels led to express himself. He looks at Jesus and he says, hey, behold, we have left everything to follow you. In other words, in Matthew, a parallel account of this, Peter asking the form of a question, he says, what will there be for us? What will there be for us? Basically, Peter's saying, hey, you remember that rich man, Jesus? Remember that young, that young guy that you were just talking to? He didn't want to follow you. He thought it was too demanding. He didn't think you're worth it. We do. We are following you. So what's in it for us? What about me? Good old Peter. We can always count on Peter to make things more interesting, right? I would imagine the disciples, I mean, you can just imagine the tension, but I imagine the disciples are like, oh, Peter. But then they're like looking through their eyes, like I wonder if Jesus is going to answer him. And answer him, he does. And here's what he says. Verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one No one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Powerful. You see, the first thing Jesus teaches us here is a truth that a lot of us have probably tried to avoid at some point in our life. Because the first thing that Jesus teaches here is when you follow him, you are going to lose things. You're going to lose things. You're going to give up things for the sake of the gospel. You will suffer loss for the sake of the gospel. You will lose relationships for the sake of the gospel. You will lose positions for the sake of the gospel. You will suffer for the name of Jesus. You know, I have the privilege of being the college and singles pastor here at Wayside. And, and next service, they all sit right over there in that section. And uh, I know individuals in that group who've literally been disowned by their parents because they have chosen to follow Jesus, because they have a different faith background. And they said, I'm following Jesus. And because of that, their parents want nothing to do with them. I know people who have missed out, we have single folks who have missed out on potential spouses and they desperately want to be married. But they've had to let go of potential spouses because they have chosen to follow Jesus. I know people in that group who've lost out on job opportunities and promotions because they have made a choice to follow Jesus. I know an individual who's leaving a highly lucrative job position at USAA, a great company, Because God is calling him into the ministry and he wants to follow that call and follow Jesus. See, Jesus is clear. Following him is demanding. 
Life with him is redeeming, but it's going to involve losing. Life with Jesus is going to involve losing. There's no way around it. And yet we're still not done. And he brings us to the next point. While Jesus says, yes, it's going to involve losing, it is ultimately rewarding. Life with me is ultimately rewarding. Listen to what he says. No one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much. This age. You know, there's so much to explore in these few verses. I mean, there's so many directions we can go. But I want to focus on what we receive for following Jesus right here, right now. We know eternal life is a reward. It's an incredibly reward. I am not belittling eternal life. Trust me. We know that there are rewards in heaven. And Roger touched on this a few weeks ago. But what about right now? What can we expect for following God right now? And Jesus tells us you can expect a lot. You can expect a lot. A hundred times as much as you have lost. Now I want to ask you a serious question. I think sometimes we don't, we don't like asking questions. We're afraid to ask questions in the Bible. We're afraid to ask Jesus a question. But as I was going through this text, I go, Jesus, i got to ask you a question. How can you make a statement like that? Think about it. He's huddled up with guys, and ten of them are going to be killed for following him. Peter's going to hang upside down on a cross. James is going to get stabbed. Some are going to get beheaded. Some are going to burn to death. Really? Where's the reward in that, Jesus? I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, clearly he's not talking material possessions, right? If so, he didn't get the memo because he's on his way to the cross. He's going to hang in between two thieves. This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel Jesus is teaching. So what does this mean? Well, in one sense, it means that we do gain mothers and brothers and sisters and fields when we enter into the family of God. You may lose an earthly brother because of your allegiance to Jesus, but you gain spiritual brothers in the family of God. You may lose your home because your allegiance to Jesus, but you gain entrance into many homes as the church functions like it should, and we live as the family of God. But I think it even goes deeper. I think Jesus is going even deeper here. I love the way John Piper describes this passage when he writes this. Listen to this. This is incredible. Surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up your sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Listen to this. Isn't Jesus saying that I promise to work for you and be for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything? That's the way the great missionary Hudson Taylor saw it. Y'all know Hudson Taylor spent 50 years in China, 
bringing the gospel to China, lost family, lost friends, health, wealth. I mean, in the eyes of society, they thought he was nuts. They said, look at everything he's given up. And as he looked back at the end of his life, he described his experience this way. He said, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. How powerful is that? You know, I'm no John Piper. I'm certainly no Hudson Taylor. But I feel like my wife and I, Victoria, can relate in a small way to what he's saying. Those of y'all who know my story and our story, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we were both public school teachers. Victoria was teaching kindergarten, SAISD. I was coaching and teaching at O'Connor High School. Victoria felt led to stay home. She felt like God was calling her to stay home and go more part-time, be with the kids. I followed up and said, you know what I'm thinking? I feel led to go into ministry. She was like, what? <laughs> I mean, this is nuts. Right? This is nuts. And it's especially nuts considering the fact that, honestly, we were pretty happy. We were happy. She was, she was happy teaching. I was happy coaching. We were happy having the summers off together. We loved traveling together. We loved our house. I liked my new car. We were, we were happy. I mean, are we sure this is the right move? Are we sure this is the right thing to do? I mean, look at what we're going to have to give up. But we felt led by God, and we said yes. And so we cut our income by almost 60%. And we went from vacations in the Caribbean to Comfort, Texas. And comfort's great. You know, I quit a promising coaching career. I was moving up the ladder. I was at a great school. Um, and I, I love coaching. I love it. We moved out of our house, the only house we had known, a house that we loved. And we moved in with my mom for seven months to save money. And we went from the master bedroom to the mama's bedroom. <laughs> Living with my mom. I sold the car that I loved. I went from Camry to Craigslist. <laughs> we moved into a little home over here recently um, that are owned by our dear friends Sean and Sochi Hughes. A little two-bedroom, one-bath home that's just been saturated with prayer. But where privacy is a thing of the past. We've got four people, and we've got one bathroom. And the first week in there, Elijah think it'd be, thinks it would be cool to throw a ball in the toilet and flush it. <laughs> he clogs the toilet. We don't have a place to use the restroom. We're looking for a house to use the restroom. And Wayside, I want to be completely honest with you. I want to be just transparent. I mean, there are times and days when Tori and I kind of miss the old days. Absolutely. But... I cannot tell you how many times in the last year she and I have sat down with one another, looked at each other, literally with tears in her eyes, overwhelmed by how God has blessed us. Overwhelmed to the point of tears. We have never in our entire life been more at peace, more joyful, more content, more satisfied than we are right now. That new house of ours Man, God has given us a love 
and gratitude for that little house. That toilet, that one little toilet, we love that little toilet. <laughs> That's all we got. We love that toilet. We love our vacations and comfort. We love our Craigslist car. We like our Craigslist car. <laughs> and the world may look at us and say, those louder milks, those guys are nuts. Look at everything that they gave up. And yet they are so wrong, guys. They are so wrong. Because for Victoria and I, our treasure is in heaven. And that means our earthly reward is experienced right now in following after Jesus. And whatever we have given up for his sake, he has replaced it 100 times over in our life with his presence, with his peace, with his joy, and with his love. We have never been more blessed. And please hear me. Victoria and I are not martyrs. I mean, many of y'all in here have given up way more than Victoria and I gave up. We are just learning what it means to trust him. But boy, is he blessing us. I mean, what sacrifice can we make for God that he doesn't repay 100 times over with all that he is? So, brothers and sisters, where, where are you this morning? Where are you? Or should I say, who are you? Are you the rich young ruler? Unwilling to come to that place where you say, God, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I know I need what only you can give. And I'm ready to come to you as my Lord and Savior. I'm ready to take that step of faith. If that's you, guys, Jesus is here and he's calling you with love and he's saying the same thing he told to the ruler. Follow me. Follow me. Maybe you're interested in following Jesus and maybe you've even followed Jesus for a while, but like the rich young ruler, there's some things in your life that are off limits. They are flat out just off limits to God. He can have you on Sundays, but not during the week. He can have 10% of your finances, but not 100%. He can have access to most of your relationships, but not all your relationships. He can be with you at home, but not when you're at work. If that is you, Jesus is here and he's calling you with love and he's saying these words, follow me, follow me. Follow me. Lastly, maybe you are not like the rich young ruler at all, but maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you're following after Jesus, but you're here this morning, and beneath the surface there's a voice, and it's saying, what's in it for me? What do I get? Is it really worth it? Jesus answered that question with a resounding yes. Yes, it's worth it. Jesus says it is worth it in this life and in the life to come. Because as Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word, the way it convicts us. 
the way it encourages us, the way that it tells us about your character and your heart. God, you looked at that young man with love, and you told him that the way to experience life as it's meant to be is by following after me. God, help us follow you when it's so hard. God, I know I fail so often. Help us let go of the things that hinder us from following you. Help us let go of the things that we think give us joy and value, but they rob us of our joy and value in you. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross, and thank you that in him we may have life and life abundant. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.